You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. So please turn with me at home to 1 John chapter 1 and 2, the verses that Dave and Diane read for us just a few moments ago. As today we think about the fact that Jesus speaks up for us. As part of the ever-changing landscape over the last 12 months, we've been used to seeing signs like this on the screen almost in every public space. It's not that hand-washing was ever unimportant, but due to the rapid spread of COVID-19, we've all been urged to do it more often. And in some ways, when you think about it, it's absolutely absurd, even laughable, that we would have a prime minister and endless celebrities on primetime television telling us, to wash our hands. I mean, it's like my mum talking to me when I was five, but yet we're being told to do it by public authorities. But I suppose the message is simply this. If you love health, you'll hate germs, so wash your hands. And that's exactly the same message as First John. If you love spiritual health, you will hate the dangerous germ that is sin, so make sure that you are clean. This isn't a nagging mother talking to her son about personal hygiene. It's the loving grandfather of the church, dear old John, the beloved disciple, who at this stage is probably in his 80s. And look at chapter 2, verse 1 in 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 1, he describes those he writes to as dear children, with a reminder of how deadly sin can be. That's why he starts this chapter with the words, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And that's our first point today, following the simple flow of these verses. Point one, do not sin. John's writing to the church and saying to us all, as Christian men and women, boys and girls, don't sin. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to leave sin behind. That's what this whole letter is all about, in fact. Have a look back to John, 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. He writes there, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Go further back to 1 John, or go forward to 1 John 2 verse 3. 1 John 2 verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Christian people, are to live Christian lives. Christians who say they love the Lord are to demonstrate that by obeying the Lord. Sin and true Christianity are not compatible. But as Christians, we tend to get caught between two very dangerous mindsets. And I think all of us can fall into these at any time in our Christian lives. First of all, we're either too easy on our sin, you know, we brush it off and we see it in ourselves, or maybe we see it in another Christian and say, well... None of us is perfect. Or it didn't hurt anyone. All summed up with the thought, well, God will forgive me anyway. That kind of thinking is lethal in our Christian lives because it devalues Christ and absolutely makes a mockery of the cross. But then you've got the other extreme, that when we sin and we fall headlong into temptation and know that we've offended God, hurt others, and are cut to the core of our beings, we're racked with guilt, we're covered in shame, we become too hard on ourselves and conclude, well, God couldn't take me back now. I can't come back to him after all I've done. 
That's it. That's my chance blown. The relationship's gone. That thinking is just as dangerous because that also devalues the work of Jesus on the cross and his mighty power to save. It's saying that that was not enough. And that's where the honesty of John's letter to his beloved children clicks in. And I'm sure that resonates with you today. For whilst Christians are called to leave their sin behind, he knows that we still sin. And that's why he concludes 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 with these words, But if anybody does sin... And that's our second point, very simply. But if you do, but if you do, John immediately acknowledges that Christians still sin. We are called not to sin, but he says, but if anyone does, so he's acknowledging that we probably will, but where do we find relief as Christians who still sin? We continue to sin, and sometimes we sin big. Maybe after months of biting your tongue and working on your fiery temper, you suddenly explode with a work colleague or a family member, and you give them what for? Whenever I lived in Scotland, the phrase for that was, you give them laldy. I love that. You just give them laldy. You go at them. Or you drift into those shady business practices because you think to yourself, well, it's not hurting anybody. And listen, all my competitors are doing it anyway. Or it could be that behind-the-back unfounded gossip that has got out of hand, you whisper one to one person, and before you know it, the lie is just spread. Or you're treading a fine line between humor and sick or dirty jokes on what you send around in Snapchat or Instagram. Or there's the feeling or sort of falling back to dependence on alcohol or some other addiction that has been all too easy during lockdown because you've kind of given yourself an excuse. Oh, it's really hard. That relationship maybe that you're in with a friend or a group of friends, romantically or otherwise, in person or virtually, or are you somebody who's just wasting your time, filling your heads with utter nonsense on TV, or going down those late-night YouTube holes that have been billed as a must-watch or not to be missed, that's actually full of anti-Christian thought and unhelpful ideas? What's your sin? When does it happen? Where are the trigger points? How does it happen? Who does it happen with? You see, followers of Christ are not to sin. But if we do, there is hope. And I don't need, as a preacher, as your pastor, to cajole you, to poke you and prod at you and say, stop, don't do this, don't go there, don't do that. For mere exhortation, telling you to do that won't save you. But we do have one who can free us. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time together today. That's who we will focus on today, our Lord Jesus. We're going to think about him not as, he want, not as we once conquered sin, once we've got over sin, once we've beaten sin, no. But who is Jesus when we actually sin, when we're in the middle of that sin? Who is this Jesus for us? Let's see his precious heart at work on our behalf. Thirdly, as we notice, we have an advocate with the Father. Look at 1 John 2 verse 1. Last week you will of course remember that we considered Jesus as our intercessor from Hebrews 7. In our Savior, we have one who prays for us in heaven. So comforting. Remember that image I left you with last week? But there he is, praying for you by name in the room next door. 
And while it might feel like Jesus' intercessor last week and Jesus' advocate this week appears to be a lot of unnecessary repetition, but there are big distinctions in those two roles, intercessor and advocate. Let me explain here on the screen. As an intercessor, Jesus is always praying for us. But as an advocate, Jesus speaks up for us when we sin. As an intercessor brings two people who have been separated together, like a mediator does, or a great go-between, but an advocate is someone who actively takes the side, one side, on behalf of the other. Once again, our different English translations struggle to convey what is actually meant by the Greek word that the NIV translates as advocate. We simply don't have a direct comparison from the Greek to the English because the Greek word is parakletos, parakletos. Now, some of you with a decent memory will rack your brain and say, hello, that kind of rings a bell. Isn't that the paraclete that we sometimes talk about as the Holy Spirit? We read about him in John 14 to 16. Then Jesus promises another comforter, another advocate, the Holy Spirit. And you'd be absolutely right. Jesus did promise the paraclete, one just like him who would come into the world and work on Jesus' behalf in the world. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, doesn't he? Jesus isn't present with us on earth at the moment, but his Holy Spirit does do an amazing work of opening blind eyes, breaking hard hearts, healing deep wounds, calming troubled minds, doing all the things that Jesus did when he was here on earth. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, works on earth on behalf of Jesus. And praise God, so many of us have known and experienced that power at work in us. But Jesus, well, he is also active right now on our behalf. But Jesus isn't active on our behalf on earth. Jesus is active on our behalf now in heaven. Now, do you get that? Now, I can't see your heads nodding or not, but do you get that? The Holy Spirit is Jesus' representative on earth, but Jesus is now our representative in heaven. And as God's children, saved by God's grace and yet still sinners, we need someone to speak up for us up there, to act on our behalf before our holy God, especially when we sin. Now, there are four different ways I've heard the work of Jesus the Advocate described. They're very quick, so just follow with me quickly here. First of all, in a legal capacity, you know, with God the Father as our judge, and Jesus a little bit like our barrister, who seeks to defend his client in the courtroom of heaven. Secondly, a royal setting, with God on the throne and us as his servants, but we're servants who failed them in some way, and we need someone to plead our case. But up steps of all people, the crown prince of heaven on our behalf, and he stands with us before the king, and we're accepted on behalf of the beloved crown prince, the son. Or it might be in a professional environment where a sponsor or credible supporter represents a client and wants to stand side by side with us. Some of you I know what's the dragon's den, where, you know, someone comes up with a, with a great idea, they've invented something, and they need someone to sponsor them. So in BBC Two, these guys or these ladies come before this panel of experts, and then one of the dragons, one of these business leaders in society will step up and say, I will stand with them, I will fund their project. 
That's the idea. Someone getting up and standing alongside, professionally, sponsoring the individual concerned. Now, those are all fine. But I am overwhelmingly convinced that despite the appeal of the legal, the royal, and the professional, all of which have their place, yes, I see this word parakletos, or advocate, to mean nothing more, but nothing less than a friend who draws alongside. And whilst that might not sound mind-blowingly brilliant, it is heartwarmingly comforting. In other words, Jesus is not just a professional whose services we hire in heaven and pay for when we need them. Jesus gets alongside his Father on our behalf. He goes to God as a friend of ours. And that's the personal nature of an advocate. His speaking up, his drawing near to God happens as and when we need it. And here's the comfort when we are confronted by our continual sin. Jesus is there speaking up for us. It's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel when we do sin. Yes, we will feel Christ and his, as his disciples, but Jesus' advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Everything's taken care of. Dean Ortland summarizes this for us. He says, When you sin, remember your legal standing before God because of the work of Christ. But remember also your advocate before God because of the heart of Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own sufferings and death. Your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but of a saving person. You see, John is not simply saying that we have a Redeemer who died for us, but that we are to take heart from the fact that day by day the sin that we sin and then as we confess it, however ugly and uncomfortable or disheartening, it is to you, Jesus Christ, our friend. The advocates then on our behalf before the Father in heaven. How personal is that? That even in our ugliest sin, Jesus speaking for us. When Jesus' brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. Cannot bear that. But what makes this Jesus a suitable saviour? And two words that I find hard to say, but I'm going to try and run them together, are an adequate advocate. Well, John goes on to say it's because he's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There it is again first in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There are three very quick elements to that. First of all, our advocate is Jesus. And why is that significant? Well, the name Jesus is his human name. It's the name that he was given when he was born here on earth. Jesus indicates his humanity. Jesus is known by the human name Jesus in heaven now. That's what defines him. He's a human who's glorified. 
Jesus is human in heaven. But secondly, he's Christ, Jesus Christ, which means he's God's chosen and anointed king. Or another way of naming him is he's the Messiah. The human name Jesus who came among us is also the divine son from heaven given to us. But thirdly, we read, our advocate and friend is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Righteousness equates to purity, or in 1 John terms, it means sinlessness. This is referred to throughout this letter. Some of the examples, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, in him is no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, he is righteous. John wants us to get that Jesus is perfect. And this is vital because we can only be cleansed, we can only be forgiven through a righteous Savior. In Old Testament terms, a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice. One who is able to represent mankind adequately because he is human. One who can speak to God as an equal because he is God's chosen king. One who was perfect and sinless and therefore accepted to appear before a holy God. God. In order for the advocacy of Jesus to be effective, we need him to be all three, Jesus Christ righteous, son of God, son of man, sinless. Anything less would not be enough, and that would leave us without a human voice in heaven or an advocate with the Father. John Piper comments on this, and is it not significant that he calls Jesus the righteous one, Jesus the righteous, God the Father doesn't look back to the cross. He looks straight ahead into the face of the living, righteous Jesus, who is our righteousness and is our life and is our purchase and payment. We have an advocate with God because of the present living reality of the resurrected Christ who speaks up for us as God's people from our sinful shame on earth in the very throne room of heaven. And of course, all of this rests on John's very last phrase in 1 John 2, verse 2. Do you see it there? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As human beings, we are all self-advocates. It's part of our sinful human nature. We are all very quick to defend ourselves against any accusation, aren't we? None of us were ever taught by our parents how to make excuses when we were caught misbehaving. We are born with that built-in mechanism that always shifts the blame or covers up. We all like to make ourselves out as not as bad as we are. Or to use the increasingly familiar term that lots of us claim special circumstances to justify when we have sinned or failed to come up to the mark. We minimize sin, we excuse sin, we seek to explain sin away, pointing at everything else around us instead of the fact that there's sin deep within us. But verse 2 reminds us that we're all sinners without excuse, needing atonement from those sins before we can have an advocate who speaks for us when we sin. You see, the ultimate problem is that God's wrath rests upon us. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say here because it goes against so many things that are taught in churches these days. We must get away from the notion that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's not in the Bible. No, God's wrath is against every sinner and it's personal. In his holy, righteous anger, he will destroy sinners. 
sinners will be utterly consumed and hell-bound and lost forever without anyone to speak up for them. And our children at home must know that and hear that. And all of us must recognize that today. If you're a sinner today who has not repented of that sin and confessed it before God, God's anger rests upon you today. And I don't say that in hatred. I say that in love. But the ultimate good news is that God has made a way to deal with his holy anger against sin. For he doesn't just sweep sin under the great universal carpet and pretend it never happened in order to make friends with us again. No, in his sovereign grace, the righteous God-man, Jesus Christ, becomes the sacrifice for sin. At the cross, love and justice come crashing together in the agonizing, sin-atoning death of Jesus. Because God is not content to leave all people under his wrath. And it's only with the blood of Christ that we can be cleansed from sin. That's what it means when verse 2 states at the end that Jesus' atoning sacrifice is also for the sins of the world. In other words, it means I can say to you out there today, whoever you are, Christ is there for you. Whoever you are, whatever your sin, he has it covered. His death can deal with it. His blood was shed for it. And we can either, and this is the stark reality, it's either one or the other. You can either choose Christ to pay for your sin, or you will stand before God at the end and you will pay for your sin. There is no in-between. Either you let Jesus pay for it, or you pay for your own sin as you advocate for yourself. Would you not rather face God with Jesus as your advocate and friend than stand before him guilty, but all alone? 1 John 4 verse 10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so when we combine 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, we see Jesus stepping forward in heaven as our barrister, as our sponsor, as our royal friend, so that every time we sin, he doesn't need to come back down and hang on the cross again. No. You know what he does? Well, you've all seen those movies when you go to a court case, don't you? And the barrister comes in and he's wearing the wig. Well, you know what Jesus does? Every time what we sin, Jesus comes in before the Father. And he takes out a photograph of the, of the nail-scarred hands. He says, look, look what I did. And then he has video evidence of, of the whipping that he took. And he shows it as, as exhibit B. And he lays it down. He says, look, look at the whipping I took on behalf of my people. And then he takes out another piece of evidence. It's a written statement from Pilate to say he's handed over, that he is the king of Jews and he's to be crucified. And then he has the final moment recorded on audio. It is finished. And he binds it up and he presents the portfolio between God the Father. And the Father says, it's all paid for. It's all paid for. The advocacy of Jesus and the atonement for sin made by Jesus are part of his great 
saving work. And what he pleads on our behalf in heaven is the ongoing effect of his death here on earth. This past week, the nation has been gripped once again by Captain Tom Moore, hasn't it? Second World War veteran turned multi-million pound fundraiser. He died at the age of 100. His voice, his hit single, his garden marathon on a row later, all lifted the mood and touched many hearts during lockdown. There was something about him that, that united people and captured where we've been as a society. We've all been, we've all been hanging out for a hero. We've all been wanting to pin our hopes on, on someone who just brings people together, someone to look up to and respect and galvanize the collective flagging spirits of our land during such a difficult year. And whilst I admire the man, and he has made me smile on so many occasions, and all that he accomplished and the inspiration he's been, I feel that as Christians we need to continue to overlook and we often underplay the immeasurably more of the man of heaven. Jesus, our advocate. You know, I think so many of us are sitting at home today and we have woefully downgraded Jesus by the way we live our lives that he seems such a little and such an insignificant savior. And yet even in our sin, he continues to present before his father the work that he's done for us. So, so often in our minds, we, we belittle him so much as if he makes no difference to us when we are suffering or sad and even less when we sin. Friends, don't minimize your sin. Don't excuse your sin away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus, the righteous one friend. For when we come to Christ in our sin, having let him down again, that is when his heart of love erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven and with resounding defense, pointing to his nail-marked hands, his spear-pierced side. And in that moment, he silences the accusations of the devil. He astonishes the angels of heaven and celebrates the Father's loving embrace in spite of our mess. The God who came among us, the Jesus, continues to speak for us. The God of angel armies is always by my side.